if you're really practicing lots of yoga meditation mindfulness then you've got um, your prefrontal cortex actually does begin to grow okay and that will allow you to auto-regulate self-regulate a lot better than for example a person that doesn't practice You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Hi there. Welcome back to Wisdom for Wellbeing. It is Dr. Caitlin Hargis here, and I am delighted to be jumping into your earbuds or wherever you are listening to this episode today. Now, a lot of you would know if you've been listening for a while that I am a yoga psychology nerd. My dissertation explored using yoga as a therapeutic intervention for individuals, specifically women, experiencing chronic stress and symptoms of anxiety and depression. So I was looking at the psychological transformation that unfolded through the course of engaging in a regular yoga practice, along with looking at what was happening in terms of inflammation, immune system function, so actually taking blood samples, looking at epigenetic changes, yoga, we found to be a beneficial practice. Now, what I was not looking at, what I did not explore was the neural anatomy, the neural atomical changes that came through the practice of yoga and mindfulness. Although I, of course, believe that this was what unfolded. Luckily, we have Dr. Ral Raitova joining us today to talk about neural anatomy and how the practice of yoga, of mindfulness, actually changes the structure, the function of your brain. Now, Dr. Val is a neuroscientist passionate about empowering people to have clarity about their brains. With a PhD focusing specifically on brain mechanisms underlying fear-related and anxiety-related behavior, her expertise assists exploring the benefits of yoga and meditation practices on these behaviors as well as day-to-day living. She currently teaches at Victoria University. She is a mother and a very avid kite server. I I actually met Dr. Val at essentially a PhD nerd camp a number of years ago that took place in Melbourne. And I remember her as the kite surfer, as well as us both having um, a Canadian background. We both grew up in Canada. So there was this shared experience. If you are curious about the power of your brain and the impact of your daily habits on your brain, you might like to connect with Dr. Val at Love of Brain on Instagram or go to drvalritova.com and connect. These links will be in the show notes. Now, before we do jump into the interview, I want to highlight there there are going to be some brain structures mentioned. You're going to be hearing about the amygdala, the hypothalamus, um, the pituitary. There's different parts that we're going to be talking about. Now, knowing the actual parts is not so important to get the gist of the interview, to get the principles that Dr. Val is going to be talking about. However, because what was going on in my mind when she was mentioning these different brain structure parts was these images were coming up. I want to share with you why that is in case it's of interest to you in terms of learning the different parts of your brain. Now, when I was studying psychology, we had to complete examinations around brain 
um, structures. We had to know what they were and what they did. So the structure and the function. And to learn these brain structures, I looked at videos that offered essentially mnemonics. So what they were, were these videos showing different images that related to both the structure. Well, they gave you kind of a mnemonic, a way of learning, a way of memorizing, retaining the structural elements and what the function is. So let me explain further. The hypothalamus. What I picture is a stuffed llama getting squirted with this water gun type thing. The mnemonic there is hypothalamus, hypo the llamas, and the fact that getting wet starts to cool, starts to regulate different body temperature elements. So there is this regulation component with the hypothalamus. When I hear amygdala, I picture a really scary Halloween mask that has a wig like a lot of hair attached to the back of it with a dollar bill hanging in it. So a wig, amygdala, dollar. That's what I picture. And the scary part of this mask reminds me that the amygdala is the fear center, you know, that there's a lot of anxiety, fear responses governed from the amygdala, the amygdala dollar. When I hear hippocampus, I picture a hippo with a compass. The hippocampus, the hippocompass is a direction center. So if you are studying, if you're looking to learn these um, brain structures, one fantastic way is to just pop in Google or somewhere um, mnemonics brain structure, and you'll be able to watch all of these fun videos too. Now I'll introduce you to Dr. Val and no doubt you're going to have images of wigs, of hippos and llamas popping up from time to time through the course of this conversation. Here is Dr. Val now. Dr. Val, welcome to Wisdom for Wellbeing. I am so excited because it's actually been a while since we've sat down together and I'm sure um, listeners are curious about how we met. No doubt listeners have probably already introduced this in the intro, but Dr. Val, welcome. How are you doing today? Thank you so much. Um, I'm really well. I'm also very excited to be here with you and, you know, <laughs> exploring what we're about to explore. But really great, great to be here. And talking all things really yoga and neuroscience. And I guess just to give listeners like a little bit of a background, like who who are you? You know, I know who you are. How did you get to be Dr. Val? What is your training? You know, what's what's your history to kind of getting to this point? Sure. So I am a trained neuroscientist. You know, I'm originally from Canada, like yourself. And, you know, I came here about 10 years ago to do my PhD in neuroscience. Um, and I've completed that in 2018. I did that at the University of Melbourne. And what I specialized in is behavioral neuroscience. So my PhD really was on um, the neuroscience or the underlying mechanisms of anxiety, fear-related behavior, and social behavior. So I am an expert in that field, okay? And then I'm also, you know, a yoga fan or a yoga freak, whatever you want to call it, right? I love doing... A yoga practitioner. Yeah. <laughs> lover. Well, that's right. Lover, lover. Yeah, that's right. Or, you know, 
given that I'm a neuroscientist, maybe there's a bit of addiction going on too, but like, it's like that for me, you know, I love it. Um, and so, you know, after my PhD, I went on to do a postdoc and I specialized in neurodegenerative conditions, such as you know, Parkinson's, motor neuron disease, Alzheimer's, like that. And um, I've stepped away from that field since because I think what's really important right now to the world is, um, you know, really dealing with your well-being, you know, and your mental health and how do you actually, you know, live in this world today, especially maybe post-COVID. But even, you know, not to say that neurodegeneration is not important. It is important. But I think what's of interest to me is really is really people's um well-being and mental health and you know them supporting themselves ultimately and and i imagine too it's all related right because how we take care of ourselves now predicts how we're going to age as well as how we're just emotionally traveling at this moment in time you know you mentioned anxiety um and some of the behavioral challenges that go with this, this is all very much cyclical, isn't it? Like when we get involved in well-being practices, yoga, of course, is one of those. There's many, but yoga is what we're going to be talking about here. That affects how we travel day to day and how we travel day to day, of course, affects us for our lifetime, you know, and affects community. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, totally. And I think it's very, you know, it's, it's impactful and it's really you know, going back to your initial question, I think it is, it's just my passion and my interest really to empower, mm-hmm. to empower people to have clarity about their brains so that they are the authors, you know, of, of their life and their future. You know, it doesn't have to come to a intervention sort of um, thing. Yeah. And, and this is something that I'm so passionate about is empowering people. I think like we can tell people what to do. I mean, people have told me what to do. I'm sure people have told you what to do in your life. If you don't understand the why, we're never going to do it. Like a huge part in terms of motivation, which, you know, <laughs> come hither is kind of a come here, come there sort of challenge. I think motivation is a whole other conversation. But like in order to find any sort of motivation, I know it's important to know a why, like the underpinnings of it. So I love that you talk about that being part of empowerment. So speaking of, what on earth is neuroanatomy? For any listeners who are like, I know that term, I know what anatomy is, I know neuro refers to the brain, talk me through what neuroanatomy is. All right, great. So look, neuroanatomy is really, well, it's really the structure of the brain. I think that's the most basic way of putting it that way for um, for people. And as I'm saying that, you know, one of the other reasons why what has me do what I do is because as a neuroscientist, I found, I know I'm trolling back to the previous question, but it's just come up right for me. I think as a neuroscientist, it's important that people know their, know these things because, you know, neuroscientists, we publish peer reviewed journals, all these things, and they're only read by other neuroscientists. So it's like speaking another language. But what's the point of doing this super valuable research if you're not actually going to relay it to the public or let the world know or you know like that so i think it's really important so neuroanatomy is the structure of your brain ultimately you know the different parts of their brain and how they're interconnected because structure and function are interlinked of course yeah okay so and just so listeners know structure being how the brain um like works in terms of this part here does x y and z and then the function is like the actual part like I guess the the way the brain operates is that how you would describe it like so that we know exactly what structure and function are how would how would we kind of define that thanks 
So um, I would say the structure, the structure is the physical structure within a brain. Let's say, let's take the amygdala, okay? <laughs> Popular structure, right? Within the brain. Our and, little fear structure for um, listeners. Oh, maybe, oh, you're probably, <laughs> you're getting into that. Go ahead, go ahead. Tell us about the amygdala. <laughs> you know, some people call it, you know, the little red button, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, right? But it is, it's, it's structure within the, the brain and it's been evolutionarily conserved for, you know, for lots of, amongst species, along across time, across evolution, obviously. And that structure, that little, you know, uh, piece of brain tissue or, you know, so, so to speak, it actually has a function, you know, and one of its functions is to process emotional behavior. So in terms of structure, I really do mean the piece of brain tissue that 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 it is physically there. You know, if we were to cut up a brain, we will actually see an amygdala there, a structure that everybody agreed on is called the amygdala and, you know, looks like a teardrop shape sort of organ. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So that so the structure is the physical part of the brain and the function is we're referring to like the mind like behaviors, the emotion like behaviors, like what the brain is actually doing in terms of how of how it affects our internal world, our experience. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And not and I mean not only it depends which structure, right? Because if you're talking about uh, you know, non sort of behavioral structures, it could be you know, it could be the medulla, which is then responsible for breathing. And that's an actual physical behavior, not an emotional behavior. So there's different structures, there's different functions. But, you know, I guess to our interest, particularly here, are those behavior, behavioral ones. But yeah. yeah. Yet the breathing will come into play, won't it? Because if we start <laughs> to talk about anxiety, we are going to be talking about about the breath and some of those um, those behaviors that happen below conscious awareness um, at times can also, of course, be conscious. You know, we might not be paying attention to our heart rate until we start to tune in or, you know, the sensation of our right toe until we start to look for it, that we can start to make the unconscious conscious. Mm. Now, mm. you talked about the function of the brain and you also talked about how the brain is situated, you know. Where does neuroplasticity come in? Like, do we, when we're talking about neuroplasticity, new learning, neuroplasticity is topical, so I imagine lots of listeners have heard that word. Are we changing how the brain functions? Or are we like reshaping the brain or a bit of both? How does how does neuroplasticity work? Yeah, great question. And it is, you're right, it is a hot topic. And neuroplasticity actually works in both um, arenas, all right? So Neuroplasticity is the ability of the brain to adapt itself according to environment, okay, or according to what's happening around you or maybe within your own life. But it is the actual physical growth of new neurons as well. You know, neuroplasticity yeah. is either the thickening of the dendrite processes on neurons, which is, you know, part of a neuron basically, or, um, or the growth of new neurons, like neurogenesis in itself, that also is involved in neuroplasticity. And it is caused by, um, you know, environment. So environmental enrichment, diet, exercise, things like that will cause the physical structure of the brain to uh, evolve. So neuroplasticity is referencing form and function, and we get to change that. You know, you said the environment in a way, like it's through our environment, through what we're engaging in, 
internal practices and what's happening external that essentially transforms our brain. That is so cool. Yeah, correct. And, you know, you point to a very important factor, which it is, it is your, you know, you can, can do it like yourself. It doesn't have to come, although I say environment sounds like external to you, but no, I mean, actually you, you know, altering your environment, you taking a different route to work every day will cause neuroplasticity, <laughs> you know, yeah. you're, so you're the, you're the author of that, you know? Yeah, that's, and, and we have some control. There are certain, obviously, environmental elements that we don't have the control over. But as you said, we can switch up our roots. We can, you know, directly alter our um, patterns of behavior in terms of our daily routine, our daily ritual, how our house, you know, our rooms are situated to an extent and how we're operating within that. And yoga is one of the things that we can do. It's an internal practice. It's something that we can be doing in an environment how does yoga support neuroplasticity? Where's the overlap here? Mm. Well, look, there's, there's, <laughs> it directly supports neuroplasticity, I think is the short answer, right? It does enhance, the, <laughs> it does, right? It does alter your brain. And, you know, there's so many different studies that um, are now coming to light or mean maybe being a lot directed a lot more conducted a lot more you know up to maybe 2010 2015 even there wasn't so so much but in the recent you know five ten years there's a lot of research happening on yoga and mindfulness-based practices you know I know they're different you know so I know you're the you're the expert in yoga so I'm not going to say too too much in that but literally you know I'll say yoga but what I mean by that is um, mindfulness meditation well it's mindful movement isn't well. it it's like a whole it's all these wisdom-based practices some of which we can move our bodies in concert with <laughs> yeah yeah so all of that does in recent evidence you know scientifically based evidence that does promote neuroplasticity so the growth of new neurons in certain brain areas that are responsible for uh, auto regulation for example for how you process emotions for um, social behaviors you know there's studies that have been done um, with people in, um, you know, with post-traumatic stress disorder, also like in disease states, that yeah. when, when these, let's say, people um, take on yoga or meditation practices, after eight weeks alone, you will start to see enhancement within their brain structures. So the growth of new neurons, you know, in certain brain areas. So we're not just seeing like there, um, and let's come back to auto-regulation in a moment, but we're not just seeing someone saying, wow, I'm experiencing less anxiety or I'm experiencing less stress. We're actually seeing physical changes, which does, it, it mirrors a lot of what the um, research I've been involved in kind of captures is like these biochemical changes. And here you're actually describing these neuro um, neural changes, like these things that we can see in terms of neuroanatomy. When I, I guess we kind of reference like emotional states and sort of regulation in a way, what do we, what do we mean by that? Like how does brain structures affect our emotion regulation and experience of our emotional states? Well, look, there's, again, I'll, I'll, it's great that we started with neuroanatomy because it really, I mean, as a neuroscientist, I am based in that structure and function. So there's certain brain areas such as the amygdala and, you know, certain circuits within brain areas. So I'm not sure if people are aware of what a brain circuit is, but ultimately a brain circuit is uh, a bunch of brain areas that are interconnected that form a loop or a circuit. So 
there are certain circuits of behavior. For example, you know, the amygdala, the prefrontal cortex, and the hippocampus, and the hypothalamus, okay, let's add that one in. <laughs> Those four brain structures are inter they're interlinked, okay? And when that brain circuit's activated, this will cause a certain behavior, okay? So, and it's really the interaction between those brain areas that causes certain behaviors. Or, you know, the amygdala sits right on, um, right, it is interconnected with the hippocampus, which is our memory storage of the brain. So, no wonder people process emotions um, in a much more enhanced way when they're linked to a powerful memory. So, you know, if you, yeah. if you can... You could probably note a couple of memories from childhood. May they they may be I mean, joyous memories or they may be like traumatic memories, but none, nonetheless, it would be a memory that's associated with an emotion, right? So whenever a memory is associated with an emotion, it's remembered much more. Um, and what was your initial question? Now I forgot. Yeah, no, no, that was it was around emotion regulation and the mm. fact what you're kind of describing is that memories are really enhanced when they're um, paired with a strong emotional state. So like that helps memory integration. And you're also kind of highlighting these circuits that are involved with emotion. And I, I think where you might have been leading with that is that one emotion um, or one experience that triggers an emotional state might start to like light up or um, cultivate like a circuit. And then maybe this circuit needs to somehow be... Um, yeah. I guess we would need to figure out how to intervene in it or, or, <laughs> yeah, or yeah, no. if it's if it's a difficult emotion. Is that kind of what we were doing? Yeah. No, that's great. Thanks. Correct. Thanks. Thanks for, <laughs> for recreating what I said so that I could be like, you know, at the source of what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is that's right. So you can actually, um, you can activate the same circuit depending on what behavior you're displaying or engaging in. It's like, you know, if you're constantly thinking a certain, I don't know, thought process, it could be like, oh, I am, you know, angry, for example, right? And if you're constantly repeating that self, whether, you know, in, like in your thoughts or out loud, of course, I know it's different, but then you will be triggering that thought pathway or that, you know, that neural pathway in your brain that then, that then causes itself to kind of grow. So the, that pathway is now the predominant pathway in your brain, okay? Whereas if you're saying, okay, you know, my same, same, same thing as if you're saying my name is Val, you know, you're only Val, I'm only Val for myself because that's what I've been saying to myself my whole life. It's not necessarily yeah. because I'm Val. <laughs> that's what I'm yeah. saying, you know, so yeah. our brain really will recognize that whatever pathway, whatever circuit you've been using the most, and it will, um, that will be the predominant pathway. So just in that sense, your behaviors, your thoughts, what you say is really, really important. So this is the neurons that fire together, wire together principle that mm -hmm. the more we light up these pathways, the more we're like um, really kind of like paving this circuit. Correct. And the more real it becomes. And of course, there's the empirical circuits that I was talking about before, you know, that circuit between the amygdala, prefrontal cortex, and, you know, the hippocampus, let's say, if you're really practicing lots of yoga, meditation, mindfulness, then you've got um, your prefrontal cortex actually does begin to grow, okay? And that will allow you to auto-regulate, self-regulate a lot better than, for example, a person that doesn't practice. Okay. So That's incredible. Yeah, it is. It's really, it is, it is really incredible. And it's incredible that, 
I think there's actual scientific research being done on it and, you know, shared with people because I think it's important to know that you're not just, as you say, oh, I feel better. No, 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 you're actually, <laughs> you're actually transforming your brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that it's related. So in terms of how yoga does that, like what is it about the practice of yoga that supports us to rewire? Like what changes in terms of our skill sets, our awareness, our physiology? How does this happen? Mm, mm. Well, in terms of the how, look, I – Ultimately, you know, it as a neuroscientist, I think it is, it does just, I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not an expert in how, I just, it's like I have an idea of how, but I don't really know. Ultimately, the how is, I think, you know, it causes neuroplasticity and new neurons to form and grow and, you know, certain pathways to be really, really activated such that they become the predominant pathways you know or if you've got it now in an you know enhanced prefrontal cortex you're able to do a lot more you know uh a lot more uh, a lot more <laughs> to yeah, do a lot and probably more. like regulation right like kind of noting okay um you know i might be feeling that emotion of anger that we were talking about earlier i might be feeling really really angry and I'm still going to make this important phone call to this person that I care about, even if I'm frustrated or irritated with them. Like it might allow us Absolutely. to kind of show up in our lives more. Absolutely. Look, it is. I mean, order regulation, I think, or some people would say self-control, although it's not really self-control because it's like, you know, there's the things that you want to do or those kind of behaviors that you're predisposed to do. And then there's that interruption that kind of comes from, well, practices like yoga and meditation and you know it does allow you to actually interrupt whatever is going on with you you know on a neurochemical level you know because yeah. it could be uh you know you could be uh, experiencing anxiety depression which comes with its neurochemistry of course but your who you are is not your neurochemical processes you know they may be happening with you but i think practices like yoga and meditation and uh, mindfulness really do give you that ability to to not relate to yourself as just you know whatever's happening with you so is that maybe what it does like maybe that is what yoga does is it helps us not feel so invested in like the being and I say in air quotes for those of you here listening like the being of our thoughts our feelings like we start to see ourselves as something more and that those are experiences we're having but they are not us like maybe it changes our self-reference absolutely I, th I absolutely I mean I do agree with it and I do think that yoga does enhance that capacity or that ability for us to do that and you know what I don't know is how what would that really like how does it do that on a neurochemical level I know that okay new neurons grow, neurochemical pathways are altered, but, you know, what is this? It is it like an energetical field that, you know, causes that to happen. Like what actually does it? I don't know. But the practice clearly does. Okay. So regardless of what the mechanism is, yeah, we yeah. know that there's an effect. Like we might not know exactly um, whether it's esoteric, spiritual, or like what um, is unfolding in the course of like coming to present moment, moving our body with our breath and cultivating, I would say like an interceptive state, like that awareness of what we are physically feeling inside. Mm. 
while we might not know the why of it, we know the result is that it changes our neuroanatomy. It changes how our brain is structured, as well as changing some of that function in terms of uh, emotional reactivity, stress reactivity. And it also, like you've shared previously, that it supports cognitive performance. So tell me about that. Like, what, what do you mean by cognitive performance? Because I think most of us are kind of going, oh, performance, this sounds good. Tell us more. Yeah, look, <laughs> great. So cognitive performance is really, you know, it's it's in terms of whatever it is that you're taking on. You know, you could be, you know, you could be an into, like a person who works a hardcore job, I don't know, in the office, and you do require that intellectual capacity to deal with a lot of stress and pressure to perform, you know, to produce outcomes, all right? Although I think everybody can relate to that, not just people sitting, you know, in the corporate environment. I think it's kind of, even if you're, you know, a mom and you're multitasking, working from home or, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, right, you're working a job and like that, it's, it's really... Um, it, in terms of in terms of performance, I think it, it really just is linked back to your ability to to deal with whatever is in front of you. Okay, so okay. what I mean by that is whatever task is at hand. If you're someone who practices yoga and meditation, you'll be able to deal with it much more um, efficiently. Okay, just by virtue of that ability to regulate, to auto regulate and control. Okay. You know, I'm not what's actually happening with my neurochemistry right now. I may feel anxious, but actually what there is to do is this, right? And it allows us to dissociate ourselves from those kind of, you know, I I don't want to say dissociate ourselves from our emotions necessarily because it sounds, you know, it sounds really anti what I'm trying to say. But what I'm trying to say is it allows us to acknowledge them as there, but not necessarily be at the effect of them, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So it's it's not necessarily that we're dissociated in that we don't recognize them. We can notice them. We can name them. However, we recognize that they are a state. They do not necessarily govern our behavior. Like we can feel sad and we can very much feel like the urges to do vey dive or to curl up and we could still, for instance... Um, put food on the table like we can perform we can still perform you know what I mean yeah we can still perform and thanks for recreating that really beautifully because that is what I'm saying and in terms of cognitive performance there's lots of studies being done on people with you know um with actual uh diseased states even you know like Parkinson's patients who practice yoga versus those that don't have you know have way better outcomes in terms of their diagnosis and how they're progressing or not progressing uh, if they're, you know, depending on whether they're practicing or not practicing. Yeah. So we can even see then like in terms of it can help us perform like in this sense of thriving, but also when we're kind of struggling, like yoga can help us survive. Like it can help us get through tough times. How does yoga buffer against um, mental disorders, you know, like experiences of Mm. chronic stress, anxiety, depression, you know, maybe even um, the more pointy and like, you know, is there any research on? uh, Tons, tons. There's so much research on that particular topic you know it's and most of the mind mind you're based on eight week mindfulness based practices so it's like an eight week I guess intervention type course you know yeah. uh, which includes yoga meditation 
breath work and certain awareness practices, but it is only eight weeks long, right? That's the beauty of it. Cause it actually, those kinds of studies do show that even after eight weeks of doing those things, mm-hmm. this dramatically impacts your brain. Okay. And it really like, it reduces amygdala volumes. It increases hippocampal volumes. So it alters your brain even after eight weeks, which then allows you to cope. You know, not cope, but to actually manage yourself, manage your stress levels, manage your workload a lot better than a person that doesn't practice. And I'm talking about eight weeks. I mean, eight weeks is nothing, you know, and yeah. it actually yeah. lasts for, for for a lifetime, ultimately. You know, there's studies being done like, oh, there's a study, there's an interesting study that was done. I think people, uh, this involved exercise, okay? So I'm not talking per se about yoga, but I'm certain that if you did this with people who do do practice yoga... But anyway, what they did was they, it was like an intervention study or just an exercise study for a couple of months. And then 10 years later, they picked out the people that stopped practicing and those that continued practicing. And they saw that the benefits, like their, the people's, you know, cardiovascular health was the same, whether they continued on practicing for 10 years or not. So that initial program actually caused an effect that lasted for 10 years, regardless of whether they kept up with that practice or not. <laughs> That's incredible. And like how, how wild that like what we do now on a short term can have such long-term effects. And this is honestly, it like pairs really well with the research that, um, that I've conducted, even just what you're saying about the eight weeks, because it was just an eight week yoga study that, um, Mm. that I had completed. And we did see again, those follow-up effects where the intervention per se intervention being yoga was Mm. completed. And there was like this follow-up effect and that was more exploring like mood, but that like we would see decreases in negative effect so uncomfortable often what we would term negative mood states but let's just say maybe not the most pleasant ones and enhance positive effects so those positive mood states even if people weren't practicing yoga anymore which shows like how impactful investing in movement of our bodies exercise mindfulness meditation can be and I guess that then Val, like in terms of how it buffers against like anxiety, depression and the like, like we're seeing effects when we're practicing, but also likely like in a follow-up period as well, or is it that we need to be practicing regularly or? No, I mean, I would say, yeah, do it. (laughs) You know, the more benefits you want, you know, the more practicing you can do, you you should do it. And I hate to say should or not should. Of course, your ongoing practice, it's like an athlete, you know, you're practicing that muscle. And if you're not practicing that muscle, well, it won't be a muscle anymore but in that same respect you know ongoing practice is really what will cause and ongoingly cause enhanced performance and enhanced you know benefits however like we saw from those studies like the one you mentioned you're involved in and like the ones that I've really been exploring and I mean these are like lots and lots I mean hundreds of studies like that that show the same thing that you know after eight weeks of practice this will impact you for ultimately a lifetime yeah yeah so what you do right now listeners (laughs) we can change brain structures if we move our bodies if we use our minds in meditative states val do you have any like final words of advice or interesting points that listeners might want to grab just to support them in kind of like getting on to perhaps the yoga mat if they're feeling intrigued by this process yeah no i think you know yeah i would say play play around with this in your own life you know use your own life as a laboratory for this you know (laughs) like 
really do try it out try it for eight weeks let's say even a couple of weeks you know if you can't dedicate for eight weeks I'm not saying go and enter one of these trials or studies but do it literally you can conduct it yourself and be your own per- be your own scientist actually try it out and see what happens in your own life you know because there's the empirical evidence that i've just mentioned and you know you've just mentioned caitlin but then there's you actually living your life and i say go ahead and do it experiment with it and see what happens and i promise you you know you will be pleasantly surprised <laughs> well you will be different you will be you will be neuroatomically different actually perhaps. that's right yeah. Yeah, you'll be a different person. I mean, and I guess we're recreating ourselves in every moment. So why not lean into something where we go, I think this is something that's going to support me to become more of the person I choose to be. Mm, mm, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So Val, where where can listeners connect with you? Like you're you're leading some workshops in Melbourne. So Melbourne listeners, you know, you might be able to connect in person. But yeah, where where are you at these days? Yeah, where I'm at, look, so I'm I'm at I am in Melbourne, right? Physically, I'm in yeah. Melbourne, so I'm doing um, workshops at you know local yoga studios, a couple of retreats locally, and also for different you know small businesses. I'm doing a workshop for the Melbourne City Precinct that you know work with small businesses that want to look after their well-being. But ultimately, I also do them online. So you know, I've done a workshop for Canada recently <laughs> over Zoom. You know. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of everywhere. I think in this, the nature of the environment these days allows us really to expand our networks. So you're welcome to either connect with me, you know, on Instagram, love of brain is, is the name. (laughs) Um, And, you know, we can connect and create. That sounds wonderful. So listeners, head to Love of Brain on Insta and connect with Dr. Val to see more of what she's up to and to really, you know, support that, motivational state through wisdom through knowledge and learning more about neural anatomy i love nerding out thank you so much dr val thanks for having me Well, I hope that you found that interview interesting. I think it is really useful to hear from someone who works in the field of neuroanatomy and neuroscientist around what is actually happening in the brain. It's really interesting to me in terms of these different brain circuits. You know, you've heard no doubt on the podcast before neurons that fire together, wire together. And we've talked about how yoga, mindfulness, meditation, how these practices can enhance our stress resilience, can improve our mood. And I think it's really useful to hear, have dived into what is happening at that um, functional level, what is happening in terms of the structure. So take Take that away, move on to the mat or the cushion if you feel inclined to do so. And as I mentioned, if you feel like nerding out more, head to YouTube and you can check out some of those mnemonics on brain parts if that feels useful to you. Perhaps it's more important to know that the brain is doing something than specifically what. However, we've all got different areas that we like to um, do a Google on when, when times are slow. I will look forward to connecting with you back on Wisdom for Wellbeing next week. Wishing you and yours well. Bye for now. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. 
please visit drcaitlin.com to connect, find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.